Now on Documentary News Talk, producer Patricia Baker takes us on a walk through Dublin City, a walk where we consider who and how we commemorate in the radio documentary Dead White Men. Statues and monuments are an integral part of every cityscape. I'm standing here on O'Connell Street. There are nine on this street and there are hundreds more around the city. Some of which we love, some we detest, some we walk past without even seeing, and some we have destroyed. The relationships we have with our monuments and public sculptures is complex, particularly now in light of the current radical critique brought about by the Black Lives Matter movement, who have challenged the monuments to slave owners that are around the world. Monuments that represent a past regime we no longer want to associate ourselves with. Statues are being toppled, and we are in the midst of a controversial monument debate. I think every monument will eventually come down, because they are, by their very nature, antagonistic. It's just inevitable. All of these monuments will come down at some point or other, and these discussions will be had. This is a walk through Dublin with historians, academics and cultural practitioners, such as Dr Emma Mahoney, course leader in the BA of Visual Culture at the National College of Art and Design, who you've just heard. A walk where we consider who and how we commemorate, ask questions about the monuments that we have chosen to destroy, those we have kept and those maybe we should not. This is a walk through the controversy, present and past, the notion of controversies being something of, of now, in effect, this has been around since the ancient world. Paula Murphy, Emeritus Professor, School of Art, History and Cultural Policy, University College Dublin. You know, they were putting up and tearing down monuments back in, you know, the Roman times and before. It, it is not new. As I walk through the city, there is very little traces left of the monuments of our imperial past. I'm standing outside of Leinster Lawn and most of us have no idea what was here. And I would imagine that most people walking through Dublin today would not be aware of a giant Queen Victoria statue that stood in the centre of, of Leinster Lawn, just where the plinth is now. Dr Conor Mulva, Associate Professor of Modern Irish History in UCD. There's a lot that can be told about the city from the statues that are here and also by the absences of statues that have been taken down or blown up in the past. We have a very interesting cityscape of statues that I think tells its own story of Ireland under the Union, Ireland of the 19th century, nationalist Ireland and then more recently Republican Ireland. I come at public monuments as an art historian so to me first and foremost it's an artwork public memorials, public commemorations, sculptural works on the street. Uh, some of them are amazing and some of them are not so good, but they are artworks. They're intentionally timeless. You know, they're expected to transcend time. The art aspect is an important one, but there's the memorial aspect, which is different. And in the context of the memorial aspect, obviously, they have several lives. But at some stage, if we're talking about these dead white males, there, there may well be controversy about them at a given time. They are telling our history. I'm standing in College Green, 
Trinity College Dublin in front of me. Some of the monuments that were intended for here now only exist in our history books. So it is the historians who know what was here, when they came, and what happened to them. Uh, three royal equestrian monuments in Dublin in the 18th century, uh, William III in 1701 in College Green, uh, George I in the 1720s on Essex Bridge, George II in the 1750s in St Stephen's Green. They're followed by Nelson and Wellington, their commemorations, architectural features really, in the early part of the 19th century. And then what happens as the century goes on, right into the beginning of the 20th century, you have this, uh, it's not quite a tit for tat, but you have an imperial monument going up and you have a nationalist monument going up, an imperial monument, nationalist monument. The imperial monuments were picked off over time and the nationalist monuments obviously were all left in place. But that's not a true reflection of the country. And all of this, it seems to me, is part of our history. It's a history that we might not have liked. The reality is, it is our history. And we are what we are because of it. So much can be told about the city of Dublin from our monuments, if we look. Notice and look and take time. In effect, there's, there's so much to look at. People aren't aware of it. I asked the people I met on my walk to choose a monument or public sculpture that they found most interesting. I'm here at the southeastern corner of Stevens Green at the Wolf Toll Monument by Edward Delaney and architect Noel Keating. It's a three metre bronze standing figure which has a curved backdrop of rough granite planks like monoliths, behind which is the Fama Memorial. And this was selected by Dr Gillian O'Brien, reader in modern Irish history at Liverpool John Moores University. His statue is one of the most interesting, I think, because the foundation stone for that statue was laid in 1898 for the centenary of the 1798 rebellion. There was ambition to have a statue in Belfast as well of Wolf Tone, but that was forbidden. So the foundation stone came from Cave Hill. So Cave Hill, which overlooks Belfast. And it's the place really associated with Wolf Tone and other United Irishmen where they took an oath to say that there would be a rebellion against kind of British control of Ireland. So it was very symbolic. And when they carted that stone from Cave Hill through Belfast, they did it sort of on a decorated float even though they weren't allowed to have any kind of official thing, there was definitely a, look at us, we're taking this to Dublin in honour of Wolf Tone. It went by train to Dublin and then it goes on the 15th, I think, of August 1898. There's a massive procession. About 100,000 people are estimated to have turned up. So the procession is over three miles, goes on the north side of the city, to St. Stephen's Green, but it wends its way through the city around places that were symbolically associated with rebellion or the United Irishmen or Tone. There are flags and banners. In fact, I think they fly a green flag on the top of Nelson's Pillar, which, you know, is, is making a certain statement, I think, about the confidence of the nationalist movement in 1898. Everything about it is symbolic. So there's so much thought gone into this foundation stone. The whole point of it was to bring kind of constitutional nationalists and radical nationalists and revolutionary republicans all together. So you'd think there'd be a really good end to that story. 
having put all that work in, you'd have, you know, this amazing statue created. But nothing happens. There's no statue there till 1967. It takes them that long because they all fall apart. It's that usual thing about organisations. There's the split and then they have no money. So there's just a foundation stone. And then in 1967, there was a statue erected, which is almost the statue you see there today by Edward Delaney. It was unveiled by the then president, Damon de Valera. Again, another link to kind of a revolutionary past and a kind of constitutional present. A few years later, it's blown up. So the troubles at that point have begun and the UDA blow it up. And all that's left are Wolftone's legs. The thing I like about it is all of those stories because it brings you from 1798 right up to the troubles in one statue that goes largely ignored. But most people don't know that story. We do walk past them without giving them much thought. And why? Why historically were they put there in the first place? I suppose I can understand the power that statues held in the 19th century by understanding the ways in which people saw monuments as being a form of outdoor public education and commemoration. And I, I always think about this, that idea of somebody walking a, a young boy or girl through the cityscapes and showing them the various quote-unquote great men of history as people to emulate in terms of either sacrifice or public achievement or civic achievement. They do form this part of what historians might refer to as cultural mobilisation. They're part of a way of inspiring, I would see it in generational terms, ways to emulate great deeds or to achieve things in the future. So it's both a claiming of space and an inspiration for the future. So I get the historical part of statues. Is that still the case in the present day? I think we're probably in a more cynical and, and I don't necessarily mean that in a bad way, but a more cynical and questioning era where that's not the central form of propaganda. And what are we questioning? What was being questioned when our past monuments were being blown up? Dr John Wilkins, Irish Research Council Enterprise Fellow at the Irish Museum of Modern Art and Trinity College Dublin School of Languages, the Literatures and Cultural Studies. You know, in the beginning, the colonizer put those pieces there <laughs> as a stamp of, we are in charge, these are our heroes, you will think of them as heroes too. So it's a way for power to kind of put its stamp on public art. It's my impression that after the 1916 Rising and after the state was formed, there were statues of Albert, there were statues of Nelson, and you know, some folks of the new nation didn't want those statues there because they meant something. They meant, you know, it was almost like having the boot on your neck a little bit still. So every day you would walk past those. It's just the reminder what it means to be oppressed and having like a visual representation of that oppression. Those statues, you know, represent a cultural value. They're culturally loaded. The question of commemoration really begs the antithesis of decommemoration. And I remember as a student travelling around Europe, interrailing and seeing the various cities where post-Soviet states and post-communist states had taken down their statues. Sometimes in the case they would have a statue graveyard on the outskirts of a major city where they just kept all these statues 
and almost by bringing them to the one place, whether that be in Moscow or Budapest, you would see the idea of just how prevalent that Soviet statuary was in the former cityscape by bringing it together in one location. In the Irish case, we have a very different way of decommemorating because not really from the 1920s, but more so from the 1930s and 40s onwards, a younger generation of Irish Republicans start to blow up statues. And that process of violent decommemoration is a way of changing the cityscape, not in a democratic process, but by the decision of a small minority to blow up, whether it be Admiral Nelson or various of the royal statues around the city. So this becomes a new phase in the life cycle of a statue. The idea that the life of a statue goes on beyond its removal is something I never considered before. I'm standing here in O'Connell Street, where there's one prominent example of that. I'm at the foot of the spire, a 120 metre tall monument by architect Ian Ritchie that was completed in 2003. It is on the site of Nelson's Pillar, which was sculptured by Thomas Kirk and was a monument to British Admiral Nelson and was here on this site from 1809 to 1966 when it was blown up. Um, And again, I, I do find, I suppose, that site on O'Connell Street, in a street that has such a fascinating parade of statues from O'Connell right through to Parnell and everything in between, from James Larkin to Edmund Dwyer Gray to the Spire. This idea of decommemoration and that site of the Spire on O'Connell Street, because I suppose we have first the putting up of Nelson's Pillar, then the blowing up of Nelson's Pillar. That story, which involves empire, it involves the 19th century statue battles of Dublin and it involves then the 1960s decommemoration of that statue. It really tells us a lot about how slowly but fundamentally the process of commemoration in public space changes over the course of several centuries. Here at the foot of the spire, there is no evidence of that story. Emma Mahoney. Um, when When I talk to my students about public sculpture in Dublin, we talk about the spire, but very, very few of them understand the history of the site or even the moments around when Nelson's pillar was blown up of course not necessarily a consensus that it should fall but the next day there was an article in the Irish Times talking about the joie de vivre in the the public when the army came to finish the explosion the decision was taken to televise it not only was it televised and watched by you know, thousands of people across the country, but there was also a huge crowd gathered at the base to watch this second explosion. There was two number one songs. One of which was by the Go Lucky Four, Up Went Nelson. Up Went Nelson! A band of Irish laddies were knocking up some tricks. They thought Horatia Nelson had overstayed a mite. 
So the hooked him on his way with some sticks of jelly ignite. Oh, went Nelson in a dolphin. Oh, went Nelson in a dolphin. So there again, for me, really interesting moments of material and visual culture around this site that somehow has been lost. And also the kind of the, the process of what transpired after it was blown up, the various different proposals and moments for kind of reigniting that site. This shift we see from the monument landscape to the public art landscape being used as a form of cultural regeneration, or what I would say is more likely gentrification. There's this moment of, of feeling that it has to be an apolitical narrative. So we could argue that the spire is very apolitical in its form. It's elegant. For me, it sort of instrumentalizes art to regenerate a site. At the time, that site in O'Connell Street was considered to be one of social disadvantage, and I imagine it was part of a, a regeneration scheme, to put it there. I think the public, in many ways, acknowledge that. They acknowledge that in the kind of the nicknames they give for it, the syringe and the dinge, the, the stiletto and the ghetto. You know, they could see what was happening there. But for me, the, the very act of it being there, and I don't, I don't dislike it, I'm quite neutral about it, but it seems to whitewash the political potential of that particular site in terms of creating a narrative. The story of what happened between Nelson's Pillar being blown up and the spire being erected is an important narrative that's somehow lost. You know, could be a museum exhibition or perhaps a, an archive that my students, as I mentioned, just don't have that connection with what happened on that site. What were those moments when we walked down O'Connell Street? We don't, we don't remember those things. We'll come back to the idea of an archive later. But now I want to look at the pieces that John wants to talk about. I'm standing in front of the Shelburne Hotel, looking at a set of four bronze statues that were designed and sculpted by Maru. They are of two Nubian princesses from the Lower Nile, and they're slave girls, who are holding torches and have gold anklets that resemble shackles. Now, there has been a lot of debate and controversy around these pieces. Firstly, they're not monuments. They're architectural features, statues. And the debate went, they are slaves, they're not slaves. The statues were removed and then reinstated. And that is a crude summary of a long debate that I am not going to go into. Both sides had valid points. But... Listening to John brings to light that we have still so much more to talk about. And I don't mean just in relation to these four pieces. More conversation is needed in general when it comes to the decolonialization of our public sculptures and monuments. A nuanced, complex and layered conversation about how we represent the complexity of our history and the diversity of our society. And these four pieces bring this to mind for John. For John, a black person walking past these sculptures daily. When I think about the statues at the Shelburne Hotel then, as a black person like me walk past them and just feel like, oh my gosh, that again. Those statues were particularly egregious because they harkened back to a past where black people were subjugated. And to have black women in the front of a hotel that's selling opulence, that's selling luxury, I just think, why would you want to have a black body in a position that looks like it's subjugated with its hands over its head looking down? In my opinion, it's the idea that they're in service to 
opulence or capital gain, you strongly link the black body to capitalism and gain and money the way that it was an enslavement. And so whether that's right or wrong, you have to have that discussion and to keep them on display where there is no context given for them. My opinion is that they would be taken down and put in museums where there could be curation around them and there could be a discussion and there could be education around it. I'm not saying destroy them because they are a cultural artifact of where that kind of thinking was at one point. Think that as we grow in our understanding of who we are and what we find appropriate or inappropriate, we get to let those things go. And I'm not saying that you get rid of them or you forget about it. I think it's important to hang on to those and say, give context, because it gives us a sense of who we are and where we came from. But I don't really think that, that they need to be on public display because what do you do with those things? You know, how is that edifying of who you are right now? And that walks us right into the heart of the monuments debate. Because all of the sculptures and monuments around us could in time become controversial. And what do you do? Do we remove them? How do you align respecting them as artworks while acknowledging that what they represent or memorialise is no longer in line with our values today. Do you leave them there with a plaque explaining this? The retain and explain argument? Or do you remove them and place them somewhere that they could have a more in-depth conversation around them? I do not know. I don't think there are any definite answers. But here are some ideas and questions to consider. Okay, so yes, um, in terms of the, the question of what should happen with monuments, I read a very interesting response by the black British journalist Gary Young. And his argument was that every single statue should come down. And in this every, he also includes freedom fighters, human rights activists, including figures like Harriet Tubman and Nelson Mandela. And his rationale, his thinking is that monuments skew history by elevating one particular figure and therefore other freedom fighters for example are kind of omitted from the the annals of history but also by virtue of being put on a pedestal at some future date they're going to become obsolete just like most of the statues on O'Connell Street if we were to ask passers-by who they are they don't no longer have that connection so his argument is take them all down and leave it up to the history books, leave it up to the museums, leave it up to the archives to tell that particular narrative. My take on it is, I don't know if I have the heart to tear down statues of activists and freedom fighters, but I do hold the opinion that monuments by their very nature are antagonistic. So they're meant to foment antagonism. Essentially, they were erected by regimes of power in order to, I suppose, disseminate narratives that would um, reproduce the, the kind of the values that they believed were important. Those values, time passes, those values are no longer the same. A lot of the people sitting on top of monuments were involved in the slave industry. So what we do with them today is, is really important. A monument is never going to achieve a consensus. It's, a, it's about perhaps creating a false consensus. And I think the most important thing we can do today is to unpick that consensus.
And then where do you have those conversations? You know, do you have those conversations in the newspaper? Do you have them on the street? You know, do you yell and shout and roar at each other? You know, where can you have those conversations? Those conversations are really hard. This is Documentary on News Talk, and this is Dead White Men. We need to be able to have that discursive space around these monuments to say that, well, this person did this, but also there's this very problematic aspect to what they did. I know the statues. In some countries, they're taking them into museums. And if they're in museums, the politics are removed. The politics is on the street. They're political when they're on the street. They're not political when they're in a museum. They revert then to being an artwork. But the historical element is slightly removed as well when you do that, I think. So they're political because they're on the street. They're political because they're part of our everyday. You walk past them daily, which is why the argument goes, if you retain them there and explain them, retain and explain, you tap into that power. It's the educational opportunity that I think that is lost when these are removed. If in a subsequent age, the person is no longer considered somebody who should be commemorated, it was thought in one age, so historically, yes. Then later on, you tell the story of how that has changed and you give the information and people are informed. Statue's gone, no information. However, if you retain, do you also risk retaining the glorification? Will people read the explanation? We walk past monuments as we go about our daily lives, but how much attention do we really pay to them? Yeah, I think that argument is really complicated. You know, you can have all that information there, but how many people will stop and read it or access that information wherever it is? I mean, for most people, they will continue just to walk past. You look at, say, Nelson's Pillar. So when that was ultimately blown up in 1966, there were loads of people who missed that. Their association wasn't with Nelson and wasn't with sort of British imperialism. That's where they messed their first date. That's where they had a view over Dublin City. People had then created their own stories around that pillar. And they were nothing to do with British imperialism or colonialism or British military might. For them, that was, you know, where they met their love. I think we have to accept that certain statues or certain memorials will begin to have a second life or a third life and will mean something very different to to the next generation, which isn't to say that we should ignore why it was originally placed there. But the thing is, too, a lot of monuments um, sit there in the landscape without people recognising who they are because, they're, you know, their moment has passed until there's a moment of iconoclasm. So, for example, the, the Colston Monument perhaps was, was more evident for the people who lived in Bristol and walked past it on a, on a daily basis, and certainly the people of colour that lived beside it. For the rest of us across the world, you know, we had no knowledge of who Edward Colston was necessarily until it's pulled down, it reignites this debate, and this debate keeps going, and I think that's really important, that these moments, this reactivation. But when people perform an act of iconoclasm and blow up a statue or remove a statue, people become aware of its presence once again. 
But in the long term, I think that that process of removal leads to a forgetting that it was ever there. And the case, not actually a, a violent iconoclasm case, but a case of removal when the Irish state removes Queen Victoria's statue um, in, I think, the late 1940s and moves it to storage and eventually, where I've seen it, outside a shopping centre in Melbourne. And I would imagine that most people walking through Dublin today would not be aware of a giant Queen Victoria statue that stood in the centre of, of Leinster Lawn, just where the plinth is now. There are no straightforward answers. Standing back here again on College Green, I'm aware now of what was here. The layers of our history that are only fully visible in our history books, which in themselves are only partial stories of our past. But maybe what really matters is that we continue to question, to notice and to think. The debate is important. There has to be the debate. If there can be compromise, well and good. But it's a very difficult subject to have compromise on, I think. It's a wider social discourse that probably should be had around finding the balance between having a city of the past and a city of the future. And it will tell as much about us as it will anything else as to what we choose to remember and what we choose to forget because there are layers of statuary through the city, be they religious iconography, be they British and imperial statues, be they statues of the Irish Patriot faction of the 18th century or be they Republican statues, that will be decommemorated either through official removal or through iconoclasm. As a historian, I'm not involved with this on an activist level. So it's just interesting to see what each generation and what each iteration of our society decides to commemorate in terms of the creation of statues, but also how they choose to interact with statues, including official removal and iconoclasm through blowing up. And, and it's important to trigger these conversations, but it's also important to, to remember, you know, the people that are, are affected conversely affected by these monuments and some monuments just have to come down. I would I would hold the opinion that most monuments to past regimes that were guilty of injustices should come down but I think that there is a life for them in terms of somehow how they're documented, how the falling of the monument is documented, how the discourse lives on afterwards. The social conflict that a monument foments is very much part of its existence. So the question is, how, how then to give justice? Is, is justice achieved simply by pulling these statues down? There's one really good example, I think, in recent times, which was when the Colston Monument was torn down in June 2020. There were some immediate responses to it, including um, the artist Mark Quinn, who erected a statue. He erected a statue to one of the protesters, Jen Reid, who had occupied the plinth directly after it was pulled down. There was a lot of controversy perhaps around it too because it, it brought up the question of who has the right to speak on behalf of an oppressed people and he was a, a white, male, privileged artist speaking on behalf of the Black Lives Matter movement. So what Bristol City Council did was they removed the statue within 24 hours. There was a lot of conflict about that too. But they decided that it was up to the people of Bristol to think about what should happen to the empty plinth that still stands there, but also to the statue that they fished out of the harbour. 
So what they did was one year later, they opened an exhibition in the museum in Bristol, Emshed, where they displayed the Colston statue, but they displayed it horizontally, still covered in all of the graffiti that had been placed on it over time. They also included contextual material, a timeline of events essentially that led to its toppling. So all of the calls for its removal, all of the interventions, all of the acts of iconoclasm. But they also polled the public. So 14,000 respondents gave their opinion on what should happen to the plinth and to the statue. But I think what, what really kind of comes out of this is the importance of all of these events, all of these acts in the life of a monument. So every single time there is an act of iconoclasm, every single time there's a protest at the base of the monument, these narratives need a place. So whether the museum is a place or the archive is a place. So when I was talking about the idea of the archive, it could potentially provide that that space where those people who have been oppressed by these statues, by these figures, get to speak back to power, tell their, their narratives, their history. So there's been kind of advances in thinking about what the archive can be or what archiving can mean. There are some really interesting examples of that, which might be described as action archives. And rather than just historical documents and photographs which is, or letters, which is typically what we would find in an archive, they would also include things like witness seminars, walks, films, reenactments, theatre. So the people whose narratives are told are offered this range of ways of interpreting how, how they feel, what they want to say about how they've been oppressed by this monument. So I think those kind of ideas are, are really exciting, have got a great lot of potential to them. And there is a great lot of potential. Potential spaces to have these complicated conversations that are layered and nuanced and difficult. As I walk around the city, I ask the contributors what questions we might pose about our future monuments. So questions I would ask is like, in a culture, in a, in a country that's now multicultural and, and looks different, it's not as homogenous it was, as it was before, why aren't there representations of that change and the valuing that change, that diversity really does matter here? Why aren't there any representations of that? We need to, I think, change our perspective on how we talk about the past. I mean, one of the things when I was travelling around the country looking at what we commemorate or memorialise is that we don't talk about Ireland as an immigrant country. So the immigrants are either the British coming in and you know, causing us all sorts of trouble or in a much more romantic way, we talk about the Vikings. But we kind of, that's so far back that that's a bit OK. And then they married in and we might all be a bit Viking. But Ireland's always been full of immigrants. That isn't represented in our statues or it's not represented enough in our museums or in our history syllabus or in our books. And that means that the people who are coming in now don't see themselves in our past, and yet they're there. They mightn't be from the same countries, but they're there and they've always been there. And I think you're seeing that in the narrative today where people are being quite hostile to others arriving, but they've always been arriving. Those people arriving are made feel that maybe they're the first and this is a whole new thing. It's not true. They should be seeing themselves or versions of themselves in all of our museums, on our street names, in our statues, but they're not. 
And there aren't any pictures of black people in Irish history. We Irish people today would go, were there any black people in Ireland before I got here? How many are there? You know, was it in 1980 that it all changed? <laughs> you know, but it's this idea that black people have been here and we've contributed. It's just that we only get glimpses of it through the lens of fiction. Or it's not fair to us because we feel like, you know, it's this idea that we just got here and we've never contributed. But that's not the case. What other questions should we bear in mind as we walk through our cities looking at our monuments and public sculptures. Yeah, well, I'd, I'd, first of all, I'd like them to say, where are the women? Because it, it's quite clear that there are some 200 monuments dotted across Dublin, and there are three historical female figures on those monuments. And there are a few allegorical, fictional female figures. There happens to be three monuments to Countess Markovitch. So there's, there's five in total. There's one to Catherine Macaulay on Bagot Street and there's one to the former mayoress Margaret Ball outside St Mary's Pro Cathedral. So three historical women statues. So I think that for me would be the, the most important question. Where are the women? Why aren't the women represented on the statues? And, you know, Dublin, not so much, but if you go to, say, London, it's almost all military men. That tells you something in itself about the development of a society there. But here, it's still almost all men that we have commemorated, absolutely in terms of the research and the work that's published and sort of the documentaries that are made. All of those need to feed women back into those stories and just feed more people because, you know, we primarily know the story of the wealthy and those who wrote things down. Now, that takes out the huge numbers of people who didn't leave things behind, who didn't write things, who didn't leave material culture behind. And those people live lives that are just as interesting and just as important. And in fact, lives that are much more representative of most of us, because they're the people that we come from for the vast majority. We're not coming from the statesmen or the military men or all of those other men that have dominated our stories of the past. There needs to be more nuance and more layering of the stories that we tell about our past at every level. So whether those layers are in quite a basic form of a statue. I left the city centre and headed out to the suburbs of Ballymun. Here on the grounds of Trinity Comprehensive School stands a statue that celebrates all of these layers that Gillian talks about. Mishnah by John Byrne, a breaking ground art commission which was completed in 2010. One of the imperial monuments that was blown up was John Henry Foley's equestrian monument, which was erected in 1878 in the Phoenix Park in honour of the British commander Field Marshal Gough. It was there till 1957 when it was blown off its pedestal. The remnants were removed and restored and now stand on the ground of Chillingham Castle in England. The artist John Byrne took a cast of this horse to form the base of the equestrian sculpture that I am now standing in front of. Through a public audition, John cast a young girl from Ballymun. This lifelike figure cast in bronze, wearing tracksuits and trainers, hair in a ponytail, sits on top of the horse. Rory O'Queeve, Public Art Manager, Dublin City Council. It's, you know, it's purposely called Mishnach because it's about aspirational. It's about, you know, Mishnach means courage. So, you know, when you look at the statue, this 
young woman without the saddle, you know, riding bareback on this incredible horse. You just get layers, and that's what great art to me is. Layers and layers and layers of meaning that you can maybe never disentangle completely. But it does leave you with a sense of something to think about. When I asked Rory what public monument or sculpture that he wanted to talk about, he chose Christina Kupich's Voices of Memory. Now, this is not a sculpture, nor is it a monument. It's a public art piece, a temporary river sound art installation. Voices of Memory was commissioned by the Gotha Institute Ireland, in partnership with Dublin City Council, with the support of the OPW and the trustees of the Irish National War Memorial Gardens, Island Bridge. You could argue that this doesn't fit into this documentary, but what it does do is celebrate the collective and all of the possibilities of that. What I found, and I still kind of almost feel the tingles as I talk to you, when I you know, I think about that that sound art piece located by the Liffey in the Irish National War Memorial Gardens, dedicated, of course, to those who died in the First World War. Um, we have a German sound artist. Um, she comes over at the invitation of the Goethe Institute. Um, and then I said, well, if you're coming up to see the War Memorial Gardens, we should show you the whole context. During a site visit to the Memorial Gardens in April 2014, Rory brought Christina here to the book rooms, one of four granite classically styled pavilions that surround the central lawn of the Memorial Gardens. They were designed, along with the rest of the Memorial Garden, by Edward Luchin. These book rooms were built to house Ireland's memorial records, eight books illustrated by Harry Clark that list nearly 50,000 names of Irish people who lost their lives during World War I. She was just so blown away by the extraordinary loss of life. She was blown away by the beauty of these books. She was blown away by the poetry of what she saw of the Irish names and the sound of Irish names. The way she summed it up to me was the idea that there were 47 you know, John Ryans, just that simple name, John Ryan, who all were of different ages from all different parts of the country and who all died in different ways. And she found this profoundly moving. The creative team recorded voices of people from all ages, cultures and genders, saying the names of those that died. I think we managed to record 42,000 names. Uh, the resultant artwork was 13 hours you know, of a cycle of names being read, but also sounds of rowing from the Liffey, even microorganisms, life from the bottom of the river. William R. M. Roberts, Richard Roberts, Robert Roberts, Robert Roberts, Robert Roberts, Robert George Duncan Roberts, Sidney Roberts, Thomas Roberts, Thomas Roberts, Thomas Roberts, Thomas James Roberts, Thomas James Roberts, Thomas William Roberts. As I came to the end of my walk, I asked Gillian what questions she would like people to consider as they look at our monuments and sculptures. If you ask any question, it should always be why. To be curious lends itself very much to people having an open mind. 
you know, being curious is the best thing I think you can be. Dead White Men is a curious broadcast production funded by Commissioner Namon with a television licence fee. Produced, narrated and edited by Patricia Baker. Final mix, Brian Fleming, Contact Studio. Up Went Nelson by The Go Lucky Four. Voices of Memory by Christina Kubich. Was a sound installation commissioned by the Gotha Institute Ireland and Dublin City Council. Dead White Men was produced by Patricia Baker and was a Curious Broadcast production funded by Commission Naman with a television licence fee. For more documentaries, visit Newstalk.com.